Don't let it dominate you. Don't be afraid of it. You're going to beat it. We have all the best medical equipment. We have the best medicines, all developed recently, and you're going to beat it. Can you have what I had? No, no, you can't have what I had. No, I'm very, very special. So I had all the best, best medicines, but you could have some pretty good ones uh, as well. You just got to, you got to try real hard and you've got to deserve the really best, best ones. Um, and I, I, I tried really hard to get here. I've, I've, I've really deserved this. I probably deserve this more than you because I'm as strong as an ox. You, you should ask your insurance. Do you, do you have insurance? Oh, you don't have insurance. Well, you should you should get a job and then you could get insurance and then you could have what I had. Not what I had, but some of what I had um, and some of the best medical equipment, just a little bit, probably just enough. But but don't worry, you're, you're going to beat it. And um, and do remember, just uh, just vote for me. De- definitely vote for me. Tell all your friends, the, uh, the, the ones that are alive still. It's Friday, the 9th of October, and this is the Hot Topics Podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining us once again. This is the Hot Topics podcast from MB Medical. I am Neil Tucker, and I'll be taking through the next 20 minutes about the latest news and research in the medical world. Before I forget, a big thank you to everyone who's emailed me in with their suggestions about who to interview in upcoming episodes. Sorry if I haven't had time to get back to you just yet. All your suggestions have been great. Um, everything's been noted. Let's see what we can do over the coming months. Hopefully next time I'll be joined by Philippa Davies, who's a GP with an interest in dermatology, who's done some really useful research on the dermatological manifestations of COVID. And please keep your suggestions coming in. Or if you've done some really interesting research, I know that lots of you are out there in the primary care research community and you've got an important message to share, then do get in touch on hottopics at mbmedical.com. Now, as ever, this is a fairly organic process as I go through the morning deciding what I want to talk about. But I think today we are obliged to talk about Donald Trump and the best medicines in the world. I think we're going to talk about flu, appraisals, and then we might even touch on some research. There's a whole bunch of stuff in the New England Journal of Medicine this week about glyphalazins, and it feels like maybe soon we will all be taking them for any medical problem whatsoever. Have you had yours yet this morning? You haven't? Come on, guys, get with the program, jump on the bandwagon. If you're not getting some itchy urogenital infection, then it's probably not working. Come on, step it up. If you can hear some banging in the background, that's my next door neighbours who I love dearly. Genuinely, they are super, super people. Uh, But this morning they are building a chicken coop. They are truly like something out of the good life. And I can only assume that they are trying to go truly self-sufficient for the winter. They've seen the numbers of cases rising. They know that the rest of the UK is going to be in lockdown version two, just like the north of England in the near future. So we've seen a huge spike in cases of coronavirus across the UK. Thankfully, we haven't seen huge rises in the mortality rate that we saw earlier in the year. And of course, we know that there's a lag between the two, but there is some hope that we won't see the the same level of morbidity that we saw in, in April and May. I was one of a number of GPs this week who signed a letter put together by Dr. Ellie Cannon and uh, and Phil Hammond, 
which went to the health secretary to raise concerns about the secondary effects of coronavirus and lockdowns on delayed diagnoses, on mental health issues, all the things that we're having to deal with in general practice now, which are at least as much of a concern as the actual infection itself. I have no idea how politics works, no idea how government works. I have no idea if this will make a difference in the real world, but we have to keep on trying to push that message of what we're experiencing general practice to the decision makers so that they understand what's actually going on in the real world. Now, outside of the real world, let's talk about Donald Trump. Holy moly, if ever there was a story to ignite the world, it has to be Donald Trump catching coronavirus and taking down half of the White House with him. I wish no ill health upon anyone, but there's a certain sense of justice as the world's most famous human-sized Oompa Loompa has repeatedly shown utter disregard for any form of safety measures relating to the pandemic for himself and his entire country's population. Indeed, it was always just going to be a matter of time before he ended up getting the infection. There was a lot of uncertainty about how unwell he truly was in the first few days, wasn't there? And given his, given his age and weight, there was significant risk that he was going to be hit quite hard. But to everyone's surprise, he does appear to have made a remarkable recovery. So we wonder how much of that could have been down to the best medicines. So he was given dexamethasone, remdesivir and a monoclonal antibody still in an experimental stage. And whilst it's the last one that caused surprise for most people, in fact, all of them have their question marks with his level of disease severity. So let's have a little think about them. Dexamethasone to start with. We know from the recovery trial that this can be life-saving. It can reduce morbidity and time on ventilation. But this is in the most severely unwell patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome. And indeed, there's data that casts doubt on its safety in the early stages of the disease. Case in point, this is an observational study from uh, America published in the Journal of Hospital Medicine. So patients who were COVID positive in New York, hospitalised, but not on mechanical ventilation. And they compared those who were given dexamethasone to those who were not. So about 8% were given steroids within the first 48 hours of admission. And they found that if you had a markedly elevated CRP, you may benefit from steroid treatment. If you had a lower CRP, then there was the potential for harm. So things certainly aren't clear cut with using steroids in the early stages of COVID. And I guess acts as a reminder that we want to have careful and appropriate use of steroids only in the community at the moment. Of course, we need to think about side effects as well and euphoria, the big side effect from dexamethasone. Lots of people wondering if this was why the president was looking quite so happy when he was discharged from hospital. Could this impair his decision-making ability? Would anyone notice? Half of America already doesn't care. Now, we've talked about remdesivir before on the podcast, so you all know that it can shorten hospital duration, but the effects on mortality are somewhat more suspect at the moment. And all this data, of course, is in the most seriously unwell patients. There is a school of thought that thinks actually it may be more effective if it's given really early on. And I'm no biochemist, so I don't know if this is actually a real thing or if this is something that the drug company is trying to push. Because, of course, you would want to give your drug to all of the people with all of the infections at the earliest stage possible. Perhaps in time we may get a truthful, reliable answer. 
And then, of course, he was given this combination of monoclonal antibodies from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. So this was the biggest surprise because it's still in the experimental phase of testing. And whilst there is some positive data that it can improve SARS-CoV infection in monkeys and hamsters, it has not yet had any published data on humans. Perhaps they thought it was still a good idea to give it a go because Trump seems often like a combination of both of those animals. There's a neat analysis of what these monoclonal antibodies are in the Centre of Evidence-Based Medicines website. I was trying to read it this morning and I'll be honest, it slightly made my brain bleed. Essentially, there's two different antibodies that have slightly different effects on the virus within the body, the combination of which is much more effective than either of them by themselves. Safety? Who knows? But Donald isn't dead yet. So in the current trial of N equals 1, things are looking pretty peachy. I see that this drug has now been added to the recovery trial, which is quite welcome. But perhaps I could suggest one other randomised controlled trial they could do, which might involve other world leaders. So Trump's had a dose. Maybe we could give more experimental medicines to Putin, Kim Jong-un, and Bolsonaro. The list goes on. We're not going to be short of participants. It'd be great to get some real-world data in this group before we have to start giving it to the Ardernes or, or Merkels of this world. Now, bringing things firmly back into the UK, congratulations on the first week of administering flu vaccinations. We are apparently higher than ever before at this time of the year for vaccinating the elderly and the vulnerable. This is no small undertaking for practices as we try and maintain social distancing whilst also vaccinating hundreds and hundreds of patients. I know the huge efforts that my own practice have gone to, of which I have been absolutely no help in whatsoever. Last weekend, my wife made us go and have some family fun in the rain in Norfolk. I realised I'm 40 and I've never been to Norfolk. And actually, some of it's quite nice. Anyway, back to flu and well done to everyone who's been doing such a great job. But one thing I can't understand is giving flu jabs to staff and why this has been made even remotely complicated. So I've been having flu jabs at the practice for the last decade. It's quick. It's easy. We make sure everyone's protected. But this year, someone has decided that the practice needs to fill out some form and I need to start signing a waiver. Where has this come from? Who's made this decision? Do we ever know who's made these type of decisions? Can you ever track it down to one person? Maybe there is no one person. Maybe there is just a committee of pointless shit whose sole remit is to maintain their jobs and make our lives more difficult. And they've been busy recently because I know that I'm backlogged on online training that's mandatory for the practice. Who says it's mandatory? It's the commission of pointless shit. I think I've got about eight hours to do. I did it last year. I've got to do it again. No one knows why. No one seems to be able to challenge it. It's a whole working day and the committee has definitely not rubber stamped me to have a day off to do it. Which made me suddenly think about safeguarding training. Now, safeguarding is clearly hugely important. People say that we need to do it better, but then we need to do everything better. We need to do hypertension management better. We need to do asthma management better. Everything needs to be done better. And going from doing three hours of level three safeguarding training to doing the 16 hours that we now need to do every three years, I suddenly realised that we've all just accepted this as a fact as well. And whilst there are ways that we can do this that is not that arduous, and I've written about them for MB Medical, perhaps what we need is not more training to make safeguarding better. What we need is more time. 
If we had more time, we could deal with those safeguarding issues more effectively. Who knows, we might even be able to attend a case conference for once. So if you do have any idea where the Committee of Pointless Shit hangs out, then please do let me know. I'm going to deluge them with so many moaning letters that they won't have any time to make up more nonsense for the rest of us. And perhaps just for once, we could just get on with some work. Good news about appraisals, though. So, of course, those are much easier this year and are meant to be focusing on our well-being. My appraisal is coming up in a few weeks, so I've just filled out my portfolio this time. And I have to say, it is much, much less. My appraiser said it will take about an hour and it took about an hour. This is a big improvement. I got to the CPD section and it says in it, you do not need to put anything in here. And yet there's some kind of classical conditioning that I've had over years of e-portfolio as a trainee and then appraisals as a qualified GP that just started making me break out in a sweat at the thought of not writing anything at all. I did some CBT. I've worked through it. I've left it blank. I think this is going to be a winner. Not everyone is quite so sure, though. I was reading in the very latest BJGP, an editorial by Margaret McCartney in Victoria Zort Zoe Brown. Victoria, um, apologies. And I have absolutely no idea how to pronounce that name. I tried to look it up on the internet and I've, uh, and I've still no idea. So please, if you're listening, I'm ready to be informed. I digress. The The bottom line is that they've never been convinced about appraisals because the evidence of benefit is very limited. And we all know that they take a lot of time and a lot of money. They have big concerns about this new concept of turning it into a well-being appraisal. What does well-being mean? What are appraisers meant to be? Are they meant to be life coaches? Are they meant to be counsellors? What are we trying to get from all of this? I have to say I've rather enjoyed my appraisals over the years and that's particularly because the appraisers I've had have not focused on the CPD and the quality improvement stuff that I've already written down, that we've already submitted, that they've already read through. They have been focusing more on what I'm looking to try and achieve. What do I want to do in the future? They have been a bit more like facilitators or life coaches and I think that's, uh, and I think that's been quite useful for me. And while I'm looking forward to my next appraisal, you do wonder about the well-being component. How do you feel? Well, you know what? I feel pretty tired. Mm, That is tricky. Maybe what you need is some time off. Or even better, you could do me a fitness to work note saying that I could be fit to work if Dr. Tucker is allowed to only see patients and not have to do all the drudgery made up by the committee of pointless shit. Now, I think my tirade has gone on long enough. Shall we actually have a look at some research? So we have got three studies that have published in the New England Journal of Medicine this week, and they all look at the SGLT2 inhibitors or the gliflazins. So we've got one on empagliflazin, got one on ertugliflazin. Don't think we can get that one in the UK at the moment, but we can get dapagliflazin, which is also in the mix. And they're all looking at slightly different aspects of illness. So firstly, empagliflozin. This was in patients with heart failure, not diabetes, just heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And it was a double blind RCT comparing 10 milligrams once daily of empagliflozin to placebo in addition to standard therapy. 
So the primary outcome, which was a composite of cardiovascular death or hospitalization for worsening heart failure, was 5% less in the empagliflozin group. So that's an absolute risk reduction of 5% from around 25 to 19%. Now, most of that was driven by reduction hospitalizations rather than improvements in mortality. The mortality benefits were pretty modest, about 0.5%, which fails to reach significance. But the improvement that they're seeing in hospitalizations is still quite welcome because that, of course, is going to directly affect their quality of life. And indeed, in a secondary outcome that they measured, which was a quality of life score, there was some improvement in that with the use of empagliflozin. There was an increase in uncomplicated genital tract infections with empagliflozin, but other more sort of serious concerns that we had about hyperglycemia, lower limb amputation, bone fracture didn't differ between the groups. Plus side effects that we often associate with other heart failure medication like hypotension and hyperkalemia, um, renal dysfunction weren't seen with this treatment. All of these outcomes were irrespective of whether someone had diabetes or not. So next we've got ertagliflozin and this was in patients with type 2 diabetes and they were looking to explore cardiovascular outcomes in this group because it hadn't previously been studied. And they found that ertagliflozin was non-inferior to placebo for cardiovascular outcomes. But the surprising finding was that they didn't reach significance for any cardiovascular benefits in this group, really calling into question this notion about whether it truly is a class effect the SGLT2 inhibitors will help with cardiovascular and renal outcomes as well as improving their HbA1c. In the discussion, the authors seem to be scratching their heads as well, which must um, be a cause of much irritation because this is a pharmaceutical-led study. Probably irritating them even more was the fact that the third study in the journal this week on dapagliflozin in patients with chronic kidney disease had a very positive outcome. They again used one of these slightly irritating composite outcomes of sustained decline in EGFR of at least 50% end stage kidney disease or death from renal or cardiovascular causes. And there was around a 5% absolute risk reduction compared with placebo. Plus, when looking specifically at mortality, there was a 2% absolute risk reduction from dapagliflozin versus placebo. So yes, I think we're going to see more of the SGLT2 inhibitors, maybe not so much of ertagliflozin right now. That's okay. It doesn't roll off the tongue quite so easily. Of course, in the ideal world, we'd never need to use any drugs anyway. So that brings me on to the last paper in the BMJ this week, the effect of exercise training for five years on all-cause mortality in older adults. So this was a study from Norway, randomized control trial of people in their 70s and they would either get twice weekly sessions of HIT training, so high intensity interval training or um, MICT training, moderate intensity continuous training, or they follow the national guidelines on physical activity. In short, they found that HIT training was most effective at improving your mortality with a 1.7% absolute risk reduction versus the, the usual nationally recommended physical activity guidelines. The moderate intensity group actually did slightly worse with an increased mortality of 1.2%. And that's because they actually had a fairly healthy population at the start of this that were already doing quite a lot of physical activity. The main message we can take from this is the more you do, the better. 
if you don't use it, you will lose it. I've been reading in a cycling magazine this week a report about a chap called Dr. Lazarus, who's a, a medic initially from South Africa, who, when retired, started looking into longevity. And he found that people in their 80s, which included himself, who do um, regular long distance cycle rides, I'm not talking about going around the world, I just mean for a few hours, have biomarkers of age in their blood that are the same as 20 year olds. All of which tells me I need to get out on my bike more. So I think I'm going to shut up and I think I'm going to do exactly that. I am going to love you and leave you. Lots of stuff going on with MB Medical this week. So on Tuesday evening, join us as Kate Digby leads a free webinar in conjunction with Cancer Research UK on the quality improvement that we need to do for QAF and the PCN Network DES on early diagnosis of cancer. Next Saturday on the 17th, we're doing another virtual live um, Hot Topics course. So join us for that if you haven't signed up um, for the Hot Topics course this season yet. And we're doing an Ireland-specific one on the 21st as well. So for all of you listening in Ireland, please join us for that. Remember, if you sign up for MB+, you get to come on the course. You get to see all of the other courses that we do on demand. You get all of the booklets as well. There's loads going on at the moment. So even though the cases of coronavirus is on, is on the rise, we've been here before. We've got a handle on it. We know what we're doing. So remember, take a break, look after yourself, look after each other, and we'll be back in a few weeks. Take care. Bye-bye.